Hello, beautiful light-filled souls. My name is Trisha Barker, and I'm excited to let you know that the second annual online near-death experience summit is coming up this June 23rd with speakers, Dr. Raymond Moody, Lisa Smart, Dr. Jeffrey Long, Dr. Eben Alexander, Karen Newell, Nancy Rines, Howard Storm, Paul Perry, David Ditchfield, Leslie Lupo, Kimberly Clark Sharp, Dr. Tony Chicoria, John Burke, Jose Hernandez, and me, your host. There are plenty of videos to check out ahead of time, but please look at this link and we'd love to have you join. You can get your questions answered by the speakers at this event. And thank you. Thank you so much for your support of my memoir, Angels in the OR, which launched last month. It is such a pleasure to connect with readers, and many people have enjoyed the Audible. So if you don't have an Audible subscription, you can have three, 30 days um, for free and get my book that way. But I would love to hear from you, and I hope you enjoyed this recording. You can check out these interviews on my YouTube channel. I'm converting many of them over to podcast, but enjoy. Hello, beautiful, light-filled souls. My name is Trisha Barker, and I'm so excited to be here with Jeffrey Long, who wrote Reflections on God and the Afterlife, the groundbreaking new evidence for God and near-death experiences. So this book really touched me because it covered so many different elements of near-death experiences, and I had a very profound near-death experience myself, and so I connected with a lot that was said in this book. So I look forward to talking about it. Before we begin, though, I want to remind others to check the link below to uh, get a link for this book, but also to see some of the upcoming classes and spiritually themed classes that I'm offering on my website from different near-death experiencers. Peter Panagor has one coming up of spiritual guidance, and there are classes on opening to intuition and opening to greater healing. But Thank you, uh, Jeffrey, for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. We got, we're going to have a great conversation. I think so. And I wanted to jump in with what I think is the most important topic, and that is God. And you had a whole chapter in this book on near-death experiencers' overwhelming emotional reaction to being in the presence of God. And yeah. could you describe some of what you read and what you've experienced from listening to experiencers? Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. From the very dawn of my near-death experience research, I was aware the people were aware of or actually encountered God in near-death experiences. Uh, astoundingly, very few, hardly any near-death experience researchers have ever written about that. It's almost like it's taboo or there, there seems to be a fear about talking about that kind of subject. But of course, I'm, I'm a little bit on the fearless side. And I said, oh, to heck with it. This is an important part of near-death experiences, certainly important to those that encountered God in their near-death experience, so I went for it. And you're talking about the emotion. Uh, I think unearthly is an earthly term and doesn't really embrace the overwhelming emotions that are beyond anything they thought was even possible in their earthly life. We're talking about emotions of peace, love, connection, uh, joy. In, in fact, the two most common words used in near-death experiences overall, peace and love. And these are typically emotions that are felt far beyond anything they've ever experienced in their earthly life, literally off the scale, and especially so in near-death experiences when they encounter God. And they're changed forever. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that's the moment to me where I felt like, call it an upgrade, whatever, <laughs> like a, just a lot of things were healed in my life in the presence of that kind of love. And then there was also, I don't know if you noticed this or found this in your research, but I talk with a lot of near-death experiencers and there still continues to be a longing for God. So like nothing in this life compares, you know, there's nothing that there's yeah. no love that it's even close to that love. Do you see that, that kind of depression or that longing? I, I think that that's really interesting that, that you and others, you know, have gone through that. I, as a researcher, I mean, I, I studied God and near-death experience and I totally get that. I understand the reality, the power, uh, the incredible emotional content and the incredible life changes that occur after that. So I too was left going, wow, where am I going to find God in my earthly life? And actually I'm uh, working on writing on that for my next book because after you're aware of, when you transcend taking God on faith to totally getting based on experience or experiences of others, 
the reality of God. I mean, you really want you want to bring that God into your life. You want, and, and yet, you know, in an earthly life where we're limited, you can't have that overwhelming, unearthly feelings, awareness, uh, accelerated consciousness is typically described in the presence of God. Um, that overwhelming sense of oneness. I mean, we're, you know, we're, if you will, in our boot camp of our spiritual existence, and and it, it's it's much more difficult to connect, be aware of God, and and uh, and yet desire that so much. After all, I've read near death experiences, and certainly you and others have experienced personally. Yes, yes. So that experience of God, you also bring up a good point about how people break down with language. How do you describe something that's unlimited, infinite, you know, more than our bodies can contain, you know, in this form? How do you describe that to people? And I'm a writer, so I have an MFA in creative writing, and I've struggled in workshops for years trying to describe my near-death experience accurately because the yeah. words just fail at some point, and you brought that up in your book. Oh, that's a, <laughs> that's that's such a fantastic point. Um, and, and in fact, not only do words fail, but literally, when people use God, many people describe saying God is an earthly term. What I encountered was unearthly, and there is no earthly term for something that is so uh, awesome, intelligent, loving, compassionate, accepting of who we are and what we are for everything that we are. That's off. What word or words do you have in the English language to describe all that? And so I, you know, my heart goes out to you and others that have tried to describe that. Um, you know, it's it it really just shows the the the, uh, the absolute incredibleness of this experience. You know how how unearthly it is and how profound. And and I guess just in the very understanding that words can't do this justice, I think it helps the rest of us sort of understand just how powerful an encounter of God and near-death experience really is. And I'd be curious to know what you think is the importance of near-death experiencers trying to share their stories. So you, you might want to talk a little bit about your website and how you gave yeah. people this opportunity, some who are not writers, but you know, some who just wanted to share their story you know, from all walks of life. Yeah, we, we have a unique ability to answer that based on our research and our survey. We asked point blank, in a question, have you shared this experience with anybody else? So we have a few percent of people, around five or so percent, that have never shared their experience with another person. In other words, they're only comfortable sharing it anonymously, if you will, on a website that we then post to other people. However, by the time you have thousands of experiences, which we have in our research, that 5% becomes a pretty large number, so big that you can actually statistically compare their responses about their near-death experience to all others who've actually shared their near-death experience with other people. So to directly answer your question, those that have never shared their near-death experience tend to be more, uh, you kind of read uh, through their experiences and their response to other questions. They haven't really developed as much in terms of after effects. It's harder for them to embrace their experience. Um, you you kind of get the, the sense that they have some fear about sharing it with other people, and that's somewhat inhibiting them learning everything that they could possibly learn. So good gosh, I, I absolutely commend your efforts of encouraging people to share their near-death experience. It's not only important for the other people that hear that and can be transformed and sometimes profoundly transformed, but it's good for the person sharing it. Uh, that helps them usually develop the confidence, uh, focus on it, uh, and sometimes feedback or just even processing it in your mind from sharing it can help people to grow through their experience and help make those incredible positive changes called the after effects so commonly reported among those that have had near-death experiences. Is that one of the reasons you wrote the book to help other professionals and family members and different people give near-death experiencers that opportunity to talk? Because I was met by medical professionals who just wanted to focus, of course, on my physical recovery and family members who were judgmental and, you know, pieced out different parts of my near-death experience because it didn't fit yeah. their religion. And, and how long ago, by the way, did you start to share? When was your life threatened? Oh, so I, I had a near-death experience in 1994. I was agnostic. And as soon as that tracheotomy after surgery was pulled out of my throat, I was like, I got it. <laughs> you know, like I was that clear and, and not everyone is that clear. You know, now, and, and, and I think that's part of the answer right there. You had your experience about 24 years prior to the time we're taping here. Thank goodness things have changed a great deal. There's been a yes. lot of people, and I think that the number one 
group that deserves the accolades here are those that have the courage to share their remarkable experience with others. There's no substitute for talking to someone directly, one-on-one -on -one or in a group to really get the, the gripping reality of a near-death experience. But in addition, over the last several decades, there have been more researchers like myself. Uh, there's been media interest. I've had the opportunity literally to talk with tens of millions of people over the 20 years I've been doing this research, and that really helps people to get it. That helps people to understand uh, that it's medically inexplicable that these experiences are, in a word, real. And it's helped people to embrace not only the reality of the near-death experience, but their consistent message of an afterlife, you know, and that, that tremendously positive message that there is more than just what we think we are in our physical lives, where each and every one of us are far more than our physical bodies, that we really have that connection to the eternal through our spiritual selves. Yeah, and it depends on the individual. Like I had heard of near-death experiences in 94, and then I read after my experience, you know, books by Raymond Moody and Danny and Brinkley and, and others, and that gave me more courage, but I'm kind of an extrovert and, you know, strong-willed. And so even when people didn't appreciate what I had to say, I was going to tell it anyway. I told it in yeah, every single that's class. Great. I love it. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I told it in every single classroom and every single opportunity that I got a chance. And usually people were touched, especially if they were going through grief. Have you found that that's one of the, the main draws is when people are grieving, they want answers? Yeah, and, and I think it's very heartening that nowadays more people can share their experience shortly after it happened with less fear about negative, inappropriate judgments by the medical staff, friends, family, loved ones. In fact, from a research point of view, we're seeing very clearly in recent years, people are sharing their near-death experience much more closely to the time that it happened than we observed over a decade ago. Um, it, 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 we're seeing that gap of one to several years now, whereas years and years ago, it would be an average of like 15 or more years. So people seem to be, for a whole variety of reasons, and certainly very important outreaches like yours are an important part of this. People recognize the, uh, the, the reality of their experience, they get on the internet, and it's like that wow moment. I'm not alone. These experiences are common, they're real, they're certainly very important to those that experience them, and all you put that all together and you've got more people now than was ever possible before sharing with the world. And I do have a question just based on your website and, you know, how you categorize uh, near-death experiences. So, you know, mine had several markers that made it uh, a profound near-death experience because it, you know, followed a certain path. But there are people who have had not a near-death experience, but just an out-of-body experience, and that revolutionized their thinking as well. So uh, what do you say to people who've had just, you know, this quick moment outside of form uh, and, and they connect with near-death experiences to the difference, or does it even matter, you know, the profound near-death experience? Yeah, great question there. Um, I've got posted on the, on the website over 4,000 near-death experiences, so certainly that's my focus. But we have a family of websites, one of them specifically devoted to out-of-body experiences and related experiences, such as uh, spiritually transformative experiences, prayer spirit experiences, deathbed visions, and another one devoted to spontaneous after-death communication. So in all, between my near-death experience research and all others, we're now over 12,000 experiences that have been shared in the last 20 years and I've reviewed. So I'm in a kind of, I feel like a special situation where I can talk about that. And what I've come to believe, which I haven't really talked much about, so Sit tight, breaking news coming up here. I really think that near-death experiences and those out-of-body experiences, those, those things that really seem to change lives, even if it's a very brief experience, I'm increasingly convinced that, the, that all of these experiences are under one big umbrella, which could basically be called spiritual experiences. In other words, they're spiritual in the sense that it didn't occur solely as a result of brain activity. There seems to be that connection, that interaction, that communication, if you will, with the, the one, the all, uh, everything, the divine, some call it God, but there's clearly a group of spiritual experiences, and, and, and I think you kind of, of, of do a disservice when you try to split it off and say, well, this is a near-death experience, so this, this is important, and yours was brief and not a near-death experience. No, they're all important. Every single experience like that that are spiritual are very important, very much have the potential to be profoundly life-changing, not only for the person that had that 
but for other people to hear that, it opens their mind up and encourages them to look in their own life and be open to their own spiritual experiences. And you, you kind of hope, jumping ahead a little bit, you kind of hope that people sharing more and more of their experiences could cause a snowball effect, a ripple effect, where more and more people hear about that, are inspired, aware of their own spiritual experiences, and have the courage to share it with others, how that could change the world. Yes, yes, you make a great point. There was a book that I read in college when I was agnostic. It was required, and it was by William James called Varieties of Religious yeah. Experience. And one of his points was that a spiritual experience can revolutionize someone's thinking, and they can dramatically yeah. change in a single moment. And I remember thinking, even though I was agnostic, I was like, hmm, I wonder if that'll ever happen to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right. And so then about a year later, I had that near death experience. But I pictured going out to the ocean, you know, and meditating yeah. and then having this moment that would change my life. And sometimes that happens for people. And I think it's the the change that they go through. And have you found that in your research or have you looked at different people who were so dramatically different after a near death oh. experience? Yeah, there, uh, it can occur for both near-death experiences and really any spiritual experience. They're called the after-effects in scholarly literature, and that means the often profound changes that occur in that person's life. Now, it, it may be a while before they fully integrate that experience into their life. Uh, prior researchers said it might be as long as seven years. I think in the current climate, it's probably a lot less than that now that there's more awareness and openness than there ever was before. But it still typically takes people, at least in, the, at least in my experience, and after something like a near-death experience, it typically takes at least a few years for them, for most people, to fully integrate it in their life. Now, that's an average. Some seem to integrate it very, very quickly and startlingly fast. For others, they become thinking about and aware of an experience that happened decades ago, and then finally, boom, it clicks. So, you know, there, there's no real specific time frame to integrate a, a spiritually type of transformative experience like that. Everybody's different. Everybody's got their own time frame. And you know what? It's perfectly okay, whether it's a short time to integrate an experience like that or a long time. But the changes are amazing. These people are literally transformed. They, they may um, change their job if they're in a job where they're forced to act out unlovingly. Um, they may change who they're with in terms of relationships if they're in unloving relationships and insist on relationship that has a lot more love. They spend more times thinking about spiritual things, more times in prayer and meditation, more thoughts about the afterlife. Um, they're just, if you want to put it succinctly, they're just more loving people, uh, typically after they, they grow from their experience. Yeah, and that's a good thing in general. I mean, I, I've always looked at that spreading love uh, across this world as a, a wonderful trait, and I think that as I meet more near-death experiencers, that is a commonality that I see. No matter you know how they house their lives or make up their lives or from what background they came from, uh, one of the pamphlets that was given to me by my family was uh, why near-death experiences are not of God. And one of the accounts was that I know one of the accounts was that this <laughs> this Baptist preacher's wife had a near-death experience and then she divorced him afterwards. And I said. Oh, he just wasn't that loving, probably. <laughs> you know, she just saw the truth. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about that. That um, the one concept, as I write in my most recent book, that seems to be most important. Again, if you want to put down a word, is love. So, not a surprise at all that near-death experiencers, when they fully integrate that, become more manifesting of love in their life, loving toward themselves in many ways, loving towards other people. And oh gosh, if only we had more of that in this world now more than ever. But that's that's the, you know, a, a sort of succinctly an expression of what's observed in near-death experiences and other similar transformative experiences in that light. And I found that being in roles of leadership was a good thing as a near-death experiencer because setting that tone of love and respect for all people was really important. And I think that that might be something that near-death experiencers don't think about. But when you set that tone, you know, as a teacher and professor, that that you create an environment that's loving and respectful. And it's, it's important to be able to do that. I know a lot of near-death experiencers go into ministry or, you know, service work of some sort. But oh. I do want to get back to your book. And because I, I liked how you 
broke things up into topics. And so the descriptions of heaven are, you know, another topic that's pretty interesting. What, what struck you about that research of how people describe heaven? How can you not be fascinated about reading these amazing accounts? Now, when I first started reading near-death experiences, I was just in awe at, at the beautiful descriptions of heaven. And yet, now that I've reviewed thousands of them, it, the, the consistency is very, very striking to me. And it's a basic scientific principle. What's real is consistently observed. And we're seeing some pretty remarkable consistency in what people describe in these unearthly, if you will, afterlife realms very consistently described is that time is nothing like on earth. Typically they'll say time has no meaning in the afterlife. Communication is non-physical. Here we use physical apparatuses in our physical body to communicate, create sound and people hear it. Nothing like that in the afterlife. The communication is typically, for lack of a better word, telepathic, which implies just the thoughts, but the telepathic communication of near-death experience is much deeper than that. It conveys emotions, extremely rapid and with no room for error or ambiguity in what's being communicated at all. Um, it, it's just spectacular, the, the landscapes that are described. There can be mountains, grass, flowers. Uh, many near-death experiencers say that say the flowers are beautiful beyond anything on Earth, so much so that their colors have no correlate on Earth. They've never seen that. And yet there it is. Music can be beautiful, unlike anything they've ever heard on Earth in this uh, afterlife environment. Um, some people have even tried to recreate that, but aware that here on Earth, we can't uh, begin to create that, that music that is beyond Earth and its beauty. There can be buildings, other people there. Um, yet sometimes people go to a, a library of learning or other halls or structures. Um, it is everything that you could ever hope for uh, in your earthly thoughts about heaven, magnified times a thousand. And here are all these people describing this so consistency. Um, you know, to say it's a heavenly realm almost does it injustice because of the incredible beauty, uh, majesty, and, and of course, all this time they're feeling that intense, profound feeling of love and connection. And what I really love to see in many, many near-death experiences is that even though that's an incredibly unearthly environment, like nothing they knew on earth, they feel very powerfully that's their real home. That unearthly thing, which they had no earthly familiarity with, they sense this is real. This is my real home. This is where I belong. And it's, uh, you know, you put that all together and you've got one heck of an experience in these uh, heavenly realms. One thing that occurred to me when I look back at that heavenly realm is everything seemed perfect. So it was in the sense perfection. So if there was a green color and the grass was very thick and, you know, none of it was brown or, you know, falling apart or dying. And then my spirit form was different. So I interacted with it differently, almost floating above it and through it, not necessarily stomping on it. But perfection is what I kept hearing and and feeling is that everything was restored to its optimal place and even my grandfather who i met in the afterlife looked good you know looked healthy and you know much younger than i would have um remembered him and that that restored to perfection was part of this that here we have to deal with what is not perfect what is not yeah. perfection but there to experience the truth of of what is was amazing and oh, that, that is so cool. And you're right, that, that concept of perfection. I mean, even to the point, gosh, let's not forget, these people are in the midst of the pain and misery of a life-threatening event that nearly killed them. And yet, boom, in this afterlife, there's, nev there's never any pain or misery, uh, just the intensely positive motions in off the chart. Um, you know, just beautiful perfection. You know, it's, it's, it's like, it's grass, but it's grass perfected, the flowers perfected, music perfected. Um, and it's interesting, whenever you see deceased loved ones, as you did, they're essentially always picture-perfect health. Even if they died of a chronic or debilitating illness, boom, there they are, radiant, sometimes even years to decades younger than when they died. And of course, let's not forget, deceased beloved pets have often been described in near-death experiences. So uh, really a profound, uh, beautiful reunitement of, uh, with, with deceased loved ones we had. I, and your comments got me to think, talk about perfection. Uh, I've heard many atheists argue, well, gee, why don't you go try to uh, heal a uh, amputee and prove to us atheists that, that there really is a, 
I've got every single person that I've seen in a near-death account that encountered a loved one who was an amputee, every single time they had all their limbs and they were returned to wholeness and even perfection. So kind of an interesting observation there. Uh, we are, it's, it's really, even at those of us on earth, imperfect as we are, I, it is incredible to think that we're going to have that existence existing in that perfect realm far more than we could be in our earthly life. And I hear people saying a lot of times that, you know, our loved ones walk us home. I think our pets walk us home sometimes too, that they've got to be part of our journey because they're so good at giving love. And I, I love those accounts. Um, about how many have you seen that saw pets in the afterlife? Like how many oh, accounts? Yeah, dozens. And interestingly, that's sort of a number two question I get emailed. Right. Yeah, people are so interested in that. So I have a standard answer. Go to our website, enderf.org. <laughs> in the top right, there's a search pump button. So go ahead and click that search button. See for yourself. Enter the word dog. Enter the word cat. Search. See for yourself. I mean, it is astounding. Dozens and dozens will come up there. Uh, and like with deceased humans, these are uh, beloved pets, it's joyous reunions, whatever uh, caused the, the death of that beloved pet is no longer an issue. They're picture perfect health, uh, and they have that joyous interaction and communication, again, even more joyous and perfect than anything that we, they could have had in their earthly life. So just like with deceased humans that they knew, I mean, really inspiring, uh, helping to, you know, for those that ever hoped they'd be reunited with a deceased beloved pet, uh, I can assure everybody it's absolutely going to happen. Well, just as you were talking, it made me think about uh, love as the most important thing. So certainly we love our pets, but the landscape that I saw was reminiscent of places that I loved. So growing up in the country, you know, these deep green hillsides and, and spending time with my grandfather and riding horses and that that was part of where my love for life occurred. So I wonder if there is a commonality of people seeing parts of heaven that connect to landscapes that they loved. I, you know, and I think that's, that's true. I think some people become sort of aware of, you know, what it is. I think a near-death experience is to some extent a co-created experience. In other mm -hmm. words, I think it's sort of that part of who and what we are combined with some ultimate reality and for some profoundly uh, vastly more intelligent, loving co-creator is going to, of course, create an environment which is loving, familiar, uh, helps convey in some very important way, this is the afterlife, this is important for you to know, that sense of love and, and create or co-create that, that awareness, environment, scenery, things that happen that help uh, reinforce that core concept. This is just a, a, what love is all about. I think there's a lot of truth to that. It doesn't mean they're not real. They're absolutely real. We're talking about visiting an eternal realm where literally all things are possible. It's just that one part of reality in an afterlife that really is the most loving thing to portray and involve the near-death experiencer. And I think that's what's going on. Co-creation is a great word because that's what I felt like. I felt like I had control over leaving the operating room. You know, my spirit went through walls and, and I had control over some element, but there was also a greater intelligence that was interacting me with me. And that was the difference between a dream and yeah. this near-death experience because I was encountering this powerful intelligence that was so much greater than me. And so when people, of course, all my agnostic and atheist friends were like, okay, that was just your brain shutting down. Oh, neat coincidences and blah, 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 blah. You know, but, but I was like, no, 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 this was more real than this reality. And that's the only way I can describe it is because of that interaction with an intelligence greater than me. Yeah. And that's what so many people describe. You raise an excellent point here. This is obviously, I mean, there's a zillion things that separate near-death experiences from dreams. Uh, and that's hard for the agnostics or atheists to understand. In fact, when I was first learning about near-death experiences, the very first version of my near-death experience survey went up in 1998, believe it or not. I, too, was curious. So I asked a, a survey question. Was your experience dreamlike in any way, deliberately worded to elicit a yes response and an explanation if it was at all dreamlike? I felt bad about that question. The responses I got were so overwhelmingly, no, no way, impossible. <laughs> like, okay, okay, I get it. 
<laughs> uh, you know, yeah, you know, forget it. Nothing like this. But I, I had such profound and emphatic responses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, driving home to me is a, you know, very, very young in my investigations that this had nothing to do with the dream. I, uh, quite embarrassed, removed that question for future surveys. And that's important. I mean, again, experiencing is believing it. But just like you said, it's that that sort of co-creation. You don't have a co-created dream, or you feel like you're connected with another, and yet. Uh, a sense of connection, or and connection is, is too mild of a word, it's more a sense of unity with one and with everything, and including with God, very commonly described in near-death experiences. We ask that directly, did you have a, in our current survey version, did you have a sense of, of connection or unity or mystical oneness during your experience? We've got about a half of people saying yes, which is astounding, that's blatantly unearthly, and blatantly a characteristic of a, a truly real defining experience as part of a, a, a total, total real experience. Oh yeah, in my interviews with near-death experiencers, some people have felt a oneness with everyone on the planet and, and the universe even. You know, there's been some really profound accounts. Uh, I was 22 at the time of my near-death experience, so my life review is not terribly extensive, but I was just taught certain points about not being judgmental, not looking at people's outward appearance and their style and their clothes and like, and, and really kind of looking at the heart and soul of who they are Good. to determine who they are. And so I think the, the life review is an interesting aspect of this too. Mm -hmm. I've, what's one of the more interesting life reviews that you've read about? Oh gosh, you know, it's that class of life reviews I, that are amazing. Um, well, first of all, it is astounding to me that while you're unconscious or clinically dead, often for minutes, that you can review every detail of your prior life. This is an example of the overwhelming acceleration of consciousness that is so often observed during near-death experiences. I mean, you could make a list, you know, that goes on forever about what separates NDEs from earthly experiences, but this is another important one. The, uh, some of the most amazing life reviews that I've had, and they're, they're not rare by any means, are when they're not only aware of their prior life, but also aware when they interacted with another person during their earthly life, they could see and feel their interaction from the first person perspective of someone else, often to their considerable amazement as to what that other person was thinking or feeling at that time. And I use this as an example because this is so unearthly, it's kind of hard to grasp. I don't know, I guess I just like that this one's cute. So here was a, a near-death experiencer, a lady, and she was reliving her prior life and understanding how other people felt. So she was reviewing her life when she was like three years old and uh, daddy came home from work and was giving her a bath. And she thought it would be great fun to run out of the bathtub and run through the house. And she thought that was great fun at the time. But in her near-death experience, she suddenly understood feeling from her father's perspective. He'd had a very difficult day at work. And in spite of what she thought, he was not having fun at all, chasing her through the house, uh, <laughs> splashing water everywhere. <laughs> so just one kind of sort of amusing example of you know, how people can really learn not only from a life review, seeing and, and understanding how their actions you know, look like from their own perspective during an NDE, but also how other people felt, often with a surprise, often how they, you know, how they thought they were communicating one thing and the other person felt something else. And yet it works both ways. Sometimes that tiniest act of love, you know, just giving a tip of an extra kind word, you know, you just do that naturally. You don't think anything about it, but they could understand how that tiny act of outreach of love made a big difference to that other person, far more important than they could have possibly understood Far, you know, amazing seeing that ripple effect of love spreading out, how they affected that other person, and how that in turn allowed that person to be more loving to others uh, to a rather astounding degree. So these so-called panoramic near-death experiences, very dramatic, and certainly one more huge line of powerful evidence that we've got a shared consciousness that there really is that oneness or unity. And we seem to simply have that, that you know, very graphically described there, that oneness with everybody, even to the point of shared experiences and consciousness. And I, I found that some near-death experiencers can almost be a little bit crippled by this knowledge that everything that they do has this effect. You know, they don't want to cause harm to anyone. I saw that 
even ignoring someone, you know, hurt them on some level, you know, that I was just kind of lost in my little bubble before my near-death experience. And people wondered about me and worried about my health and, you know, my uh, mental health. And they're like, why is she so closed off? And and I saw that it was important to be open and to really interact deeply with others and that that mattered, you know, that, uh, that when we stay closed off, people wonder about us. And so that was, that was one of my lessons. But after that moment, I think what I found is that I could read people so much better after my near-death experience because I could feel into what they were feeling in that moment and then kind of change the conversation and that became kind of a heavy role in some ways when you can feel the emotions of other people. Have you, have you talked with people who became much more em empathetic and compassionate? Oh, very common, very common for people to be more empathetic and compassionate. And like you say, it's not that easy sometimes. I mean, sometimes they can take on other people's hurts and pains into themselves. And, and, you know, that's, that's really not loving to themselves, but it's still very, very difficult to do when you're trying so hard to reach out lovingly. So I think it's part of that, that development that you get after your near-death experience. How do you balance that? How do you balance what you know during your near-death experience and the importance of love while carrying that out without burning yourself out with, with taking on other people's pain and misery? Uh, certainly that's been a key thing I've had to do as a physician as I've developed profoundly over the last 20 years as my I've become aware increasingly aware and, and expressing this the material I've learned and written about in my books and incorporated it in my life um, I mean I've been a physician far more loving compassionate attentive uh, than ever possible before in my professional life in radiation oncologist I use radiation to treat cancer and you can't really embrace everybody's pain misery and difficulties but I have to be strong in order to be there to help them navigate through the, the diagnoses, the treatments, and, and what lie ahead, the survivorship. Uh, certainly, all that I've learned about near-death experiences made me a much more loving, compassionate, and effective physician than I ever was 20 years ago. Interesting. So you've had a metamorphosis after all this research and examining oh, near-death experiences. How could you, you avoid that? How <laughs> can you avoid, I mean, every week we read a new batch of near-death experiences that have been shared on the website and surveys. And, you know, we continually have that awareness of this, you know, how important this all is. It's, it's, it's that reinforcement, you know, literally times thousands of people that have had their the courage to share with us over the years, and I don't know how you could avoid being changed as a near-death experience or researcher aware of all this. I mean, it, you, in time, you just simply incorporate it into your own life, and I think that's true of a lot of people that have heard about near-death experiences. You don't need to look at, you read 4,000. I just think you need to sort of think about near-death experiences, and, and I think uh, many, many other people can embrace them and make positive life changes without ever having had that close brush with death. And I do want to go back to the book again and talk about, um, we talked about heaven, so I do like what you wrote about hell because there are the hellish experiences and now I've interviewed two different people who've had a hellish experience or three maybe, and um, that was not anything that I had. And I really appreciate the fact that you said that you can be a good person <laughs> and have a hellish experience, you know, and that people might feel some pain about describing their hellish experience and it's a lot easier to assure everyone that hey it's all love and beauty and light and happiness out there you know don't worry that was great um you know that the hellish experience is a, a more difficult one to describe yeah. what what did you find in your research about that um, yeah good point um the hellish experience the true hellish experiences seem to be only that are well documented are only about 2% of my near-death experiences. So I have by far the largest research data set of those, what I consider to be very clear-cut near-death experiences anywhere. Here's what I've come to understand from these. First of all, you'll have people that have near-death experiences say, heaven cannot exist in this unearthly, heavenly realm. They're correct. And let me explain that. There's a number of observations of these hellish realms during near-death experiences, either while they're in it or while they're observing it externally, uh, there seems to be a very clear representation that these hellish realms are uh, separated, very demarcated, and clearly very much apart from the unearthly heavenly realms. 
they literally are not a part of the unearthly, beautifully heavenly realms. They're very sharply demarcated and separate from that. So that's where people get the impression there is no hellish in their personal afterlife experiences in Indies. They're correct. But of those that have these hellish experiences, you know, why is that? How is that compatible with loving God? Uh, I think there's certainly a group of people that simply need a kick in the butt. And some of the people that have these will say there was no other way to reach me. No overwhelmingly intelligent, loving being could have better found a way to help me understand I have issues I need to face in my life other than that experience. That was what I needed to really have the positive growth and changes uh, and often manifesting very typical pleasant near-death experience after effects and they, they will recognize that there was no other path, which is really interesting too. Me and I think virtually all other near-death experiencer researchers do not believe in a permanent involuntary hell. I want to emphasize that. And consistent with that, many people that are in that hellish realm, all they have to do is cry out, please, and off God, Jesus, or just, you know, ask to come out of that realm and they come out. So that's led me to believe that those beings that are these demonic things that are in hellish near-death experiences have actually, at, at some very real level, chosen to be there. These are people that are such dark, ugly souls, so unwilling to, to face their own spiritual sickness, their darkness, their, uh, their evil, that they are literally comfortable with others around them that are as themselves. Let's not forget in the uh, blissful afterlife, you're known for who you are and everything you are. And these demonic beings know that. They would be known for having gone down that path of being truly demonic and evil, and they'd be instantly recognized as that. So out of pure spiritual sickness, for lack of a better term, these entities choose to congregate and form a hellish realm. And I think, uh, again, if you really believe that we're in a universe of all possibilities, I think if you really embrace that concept, as I do, then if there's really anything is possible and people have the ability to make any choices, even if they're incredibly bad choices, either line of logic like that is uh, compatible with a hellish realm. I don't think it's threatening to virtually anybody unless they choose to be there. Um, I think it's a, you know, a path that some people have to go through to maximally grow as loving people, and I would certainly encourage people not to be afraid of that. It's just a path that these certain entities do. Uh, I think anybody that wants to be a part of the light, that's your choice anytime after, uh, in an afterlife. Great point, I completely agree. And I love the focus that many near-death experiencers like even Alexander and Jeffrey Olson have on creating heaven on earth and really preparing people for afterlife missions, you know, and afterlife experiences that why not uh, study, you know, what can happen and what your brain can create for you in that place. I've, I've often thought of had, you know, relatives who have died who have perhaps seen Jesus, you know, at the, the deathbed, but they were very religious and that was what was comforting for them. And I, I think of the afterlife as maybe that people can be housed within their religious fear, you know, in that afterlife because it gives them peace, but maybe there is some kind of higher realm even above it, you know, that kind of looks down on all the religions and, you know, that you can connect with God in that sense. And maybe they get to that point, maybe they don't, they don't care to, but that's just one thing I've thought about, you know, when I think about the afterlife. Yeah. And I think that's entirely possible. Again, if you get the, back to the concept that there are co-created experiences by a profoundly loving, compassionate, caring, you know, God, for lack of a better term, uh, wouldn't be the least bit surprised. They could, um, you know, and, and even as a transition, to just start to, you know, get there, feel that love, compassion, start to see the greater reality. And, uh, you know, things could change. They, they could just see, for lack of a term, that, that higher reality, that different reality, you know, in a way, let go of some of the things they learned in earth that just aren't act exactly correct about our eternal selves. So I do want to ask you a little bit about topics like soul contracts and reincarnation and, you know, the information that you've read about, about soul purposes right. and, and past life regressions, you know, all of those topics kind of in one. What, uh, what are your thoughts about that? Okay. You know, I grew up in a sort of a conventional Protestant belief, and, and I sort of, only about 20 to 25 percent of Americans today believe in reincarnation. And, you know, some decades ago, it was an even lower percentage. So I grew up not believing in reincarnation. I, I thought that was a little nuts. 
So here I am reading all these near-death experiences, and in many of them that have past life reviews, they sometimes flip, and it's their pre-earthly life. It's their life prior to their present earthly life, and often descriptions awareness of multiple old, you know, further prior lives. Very powerful evidence of the reincarnation, uh, reality of reincarnation. And finally, as a scientist, I said, okay, I, I, my is my prior belief system I wrong? Is very strong evidence of reincarnation and near-death experiences. Um, we've had one very dramatic near-death experience where they were in um, uh, the end of World War II Germany, and he was able to nail down, to some extent, the streets that he was on. Uh, another very detailed, for example, um, you know, patent, far, far past life, and again, all strongly implying reincarnation, is that this person existed in a medieval town. Now, many of us today think of medieval life like it would be in Disney, towering castles, knights in white armor. And what this person reported about their life in a medieval city was walled cities, mud everywhere, it stunk, there were derelicts, uh, it was dangerous, and it was very radically different from what you would sort of, in a romanticized way of medieval life, even think of. And yet, that's how medieval life really was. It was very difficult. It was rough. Um, people didn't live a long time often. Disease was rampant. And you had to be, if you were, you had to be inside these confined walls. If you were outside, you know, you were subject to the criminals or attacks and, and you, your life would be even shorter. So it was a gripping, grippingly real portrayal of what life was like in that medieval life. But we've got a fairly large number of accounts that talk about lives prior to their current earthly life. And I'm very, I would note immediately, almost none of them say, gosh, I was Cleopatra, which I wouldn't believe either. These are people that came from all walks of life in their prior life. Very mundane, nothing at all special, exactly like you would expect the great, great majority of people that had prior lifetimes to be. So what we've got, in, and I might also add, uh, many, many people that have near-death experiences uh, have a fairly strong predisposition to come back aware that reincarnation is a possibility. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the about 20, 25% of people, the population now believe in reincarnation. Uh, I've heard at least one study, I don't have the reference on the tip of my tongue, those that had near-death experiences, it's closer to 60%. So you know, it's again, it's seeing is believing, and you come back, especially with profound near-death experiences, you come back with that possibility, that awareness, not the possibility that reincarnation is real. And I guess I kind of understood it myself, going back to that concept, if you really, really believe that we're in a universe of infinite possibilities, to say reincarnation cannot possibly happen, well, you're kind of on thin ice, aren't you? Because if you're really in a universe of infinite possibilities, then one would expect, again, with that same type of logic, reincarnation is possible. Yes, and you know, as a child, I had memories of a couple of different lives and you know, reoccurring dreams that happened, but when I came back after my near-death experience, I was more connected with this one life that I dreamed about quite frequently, and it ended in Boston, and I ended with this yearning in my soul to accomplish something more than I did in that life, you know, that I had married someone wealthy, you know, and as a woman and, and I died alone. And I remember giving money to these artists who followed their dreams and their passions. And I was like, I want to come back and follow my dreams and passions in life. You know, that was, you know, and, and do it as a woman too, you know, so that was like clearly thought out, um, you know, in that last life, which ended somewhere in the twenties in Boston. When I lived in Boston after the near death experience, I never needed a map for anything that was an older location. I could just walk to Harvard, walk here, you know, like <laughs> I knew where things were just intuitively. And it was, wow. it was interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what you get. I mean, you can have that retained memory uh, even from prior lives. And, and that certainly can, you know, you always wonder how much does that affect us? You know, how much is in our soul growth and our current earthly life is based on lessons or things that we needed to learn from prior lives. Fascinating topic. Uh, I'm keeping my eyes out for near-death experience and uh, developing research as we go along. But reincarnation, uh, certainly from my research, from, from lots of near-death experience evidence, seems to be real. And that's exciting. 
Yeah, it is. It is. And people reframe it in, in many different ways, but uh, it's still kind of fascinating. The thing that I want to ask you next is the missions on Earth. So you wrote a lot about near-death experiencers coming back with a mission. I felt very lucky to come back with a very specific mission. Uh, you know, God said, go into the classrooms, be a teacher. And that was perfect for my past and perfect for what I needed to, to do. That mission has ended. <laughs> this voice of God came to me a few uh, years ago and said, I'm free to do what I want at this point, And I'm still in education. But now I think I'm back at that place where a lot of near-death experiencers end up, which is, okay, I know I want to add healing and hope and health to this world. You know, what's the best way to do that? Have you seen a commonality in the missions of people? Sure. Yeah, good question. Um, it is rare. You had a very rare near-death experience where you were given some very specific direction as to what to do. The great majority of people that have a near-death experience know their earthly life's important. They know that there's an important things that they need to be doing, but they don't have specific information. And that causes a lot of turmoil in people. They, they kind of know it's important, but gosh, what is it? And I think the answer is for the great, great majority of near-death experiences, your life's important, choose something, but we're not going to tell you. It's sort of like that free will thing. I mean, they're not, you're not going to be guided. And even teaching, I mean, what is teaching? God, there's about, there's a thousand different things you could do with teaching. That's, not very, you know, not entirely specific other than, you know, it defines more of a role. So one thing that's very clear about a role is that while people are aware their earthly life is extremely important, I'm talking about everybody, all walks of life and whatever they do, they don't really have that in the near-death experience, almost never do they have that direction. Go out and build an ark. I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> so it might happen, but not thousands of near-death experiences uh, people come back and, and I think they have to struggle and it, I think a lot of them, you know, with their new values that they had with their near-death experience, it's sort of their new values and desire to reach out to the world lovingly where that intersects with the needs of the world. They have their vocation, purpose, and things they ought to be doing here. So um, it, it's something everybody, or at least a great, great majority of near-death experiencers have to choose. And I I think especially in a world where so many people wonder if, if life is meaningful, if it's, you know, if it seems to be important, if we're just, you know, a speck on this globe, you know, what, what is it all, you know, how, how could what we do be important? Near-death experiences have the incredibly positive message that every single person on this planet is incredibly important and in every single way. So it's just a profound, if you will, validation of our humanity in the sense of our importance and significance and relation, not only to every other person on the planet, but to that in the afterlife as well. I mean, it, it literally, in a very positive way, helps define who we are, what we are, and certainly the importance of what we're doing here, which generally we have to pick and choose. So. And what percentage of people do you think are interested in the afterlife? You said you've talked to tens of millions of people at this point. I, the way I look at it, and I look down at Earth, I think people are from, I, I talked to my father in the afterlife, so he's in this realm, and he looks down, and he said that not as many people as you think are looking up to the heavens and questioning spirituality and really wondering about their purpose. He said that a lot of people really are connected in their bubbles of life and they're worried about their sphere and their dinner and what they're doing. Um, you know, just estimating, were you surprised by the amount of interest in your research or were you surprised that there isn't more interest? <laughs> well, that's a real good question. I, I really came out, I, I literally for, about the first half of my website, I was Dr. Jeff. I was, that's it. That was the only way my name appeared. I was so concerned about the attitudes of others. I mean, as a physician, we're subject to scrutiny. Um, you know, we have uh, medical staffs making judgments on whether we should be a part of their staff. Uh, you know, other people, you know, sort of making assessments as to whether we should be a part of their medical society or things like that. So I was very, very cautious. So I actually came out when I did my New York Times best-selling Evidence of the Afterlife. My, what a way to come out. So I think a lot of people being both a physician and having a New York Times best-selling book, and especially those that read it, it was like, well, you can't really debate, Doc. I mean, the evidence is so strong. How are you going to debate that? I've never lost a debate on the reality of near-death experience, by the way. But <laughs> Me neither. I think a lot of people, and of course, I was on the media all over the place, but 
even the doctors I work with and, and many, many other people, I think even if they didn't resonate with the message of near-death experience and what that was all about, I was a success in earthly terms just because I'd had that book and that media awareness. And, and so, uh, and, and like I say, if people were aware of that, they, they, they realized how strong the evidence was. So very quickly, even in this very conservative area that I live now in the very deep south, and did I say deep south? I actually live in Louisiana, a little bit south of New Orleans, believe it or not, an hour away. So that's deep south. But even in this area, people uh, were, the great majority of people embraced what I had to do. I had people stop me in the hall, happened even this week, and share a near-death experience. I've been invited to talk to churches a number of times in this area. So, you know, even in an area like this, um, people seem to find that common thread with what's in a near-death experience. It seems to resonate with people across a huge number of belief systems. And that's really helped me with my outreach with this near-death experience. Uh, I think in a way, I guess I'm lucky in a way that I didn't have to, you know, if I had come out 20 years ago and said, I've got a website, I think the reaction would have been a lot more poo-poo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very interesting. I like hearing that part of your journey because even, you know, just, well, eight years ago, I told my story on the bio channel and the National Geographic covered my story, but then I decided to start blogging and my colleagues at a community college were like, can't you wait till retirement? You know, like, <laughs> and you know, even, even my Dane's like, well, now everyone knows you're weird. <laughs> you know? and, and they laugh about it, you know, on some level, but, but I felt it was just also common. I mean, if people like you have written books about this and, you know, so many people are out talking about it, I thought, no, this is like more than common. This is just ordinary almost at this yeah. point to talk about these things. And so I felt perfectly at ease, you know, talking yeah. publicly about my near-death yeah. experience. Yeah, and I think now more than ever, I mean, I even, uh, after my first book came out, I talked at a medical grand rounds up in Milwaukee. It's, I believe their largest hospital. I warned them, I said, however big you think your auditorium is, it's going to fill when you tell people that this is going to be the grand rounds or sort of a special talk they have once a month. But I was right. They filled it. We had people sitting in the aisleways, and I felt a little bad about that. But what was significant there is as part of the, the grand rounds process, they would survey all the doctors that attended, and they would doctors would give their feedback, and they assured me before the talk, we will give you their feedback, whatever it is. And after I presented the evidence for the reality of near-death experience, I was astounded at the extremely high percentage of physicians right there, their feedback, you know, nobody pulling any punches that were very positive about it, that were very thought it was very, uh, you know, important, significant, and, and there were, you know, only a couple people that were sort of, you know, made it clear that wasn't their belief system. But I mean, the, the biggest picture was a great, great majority of people were, were very open, embracing, and and respected this as being important research. So again, I think now more than ever, we have people that are uh, that understand the reality of near-death experiences. More people are talking about it, so people have had more, you know, I don't say personal, but but it, personal interaction with people that have had near-death experiences. And the media, by and large, with exceptions, has done a good job of of appropriately, accurately, most of the time, portraying near-death experience. So. People have really, you know, know about that now more than ever. I'm sure the great majority of people in America have heard about near-death experience in the past, and so it's it's not a new term to them. So I think all those factors put together make it a better environment now for us to talk about near-death experience than we ever had before. Some people I've encountered uh, have kind of joked and said, like, you know, they're very logically driven and, and they're like, am I living under a rock? There's this whole community of people who, you know, are talking yeah. about energy and their vibration and, you know, all these things. And I'm like, yeah, maybe you are living under a rock because yeah. it is it is quite ordinary and quite normal. And I think now I don't even respond to a professional speaker who doesn't have a certain energy, you know, that's connected to them. Like I'm really clear at reading energy in people. And, you know, if they're coming from this place of love and openness and an open heart, then I'm drawn to them. And that is, that is a little bit more difficult to teach certain personality types, you know, like it, it becomes easier for certain personality types than others. But I, uh, that's, that's one thing that I've noticed. Have you noticed something along oh, those lines no question about that i mean people come in with pre-existing beliefs and you know especially some people that's that's their whole part of their identity 
their identity may be fake atheists. I mean, their identity, literally in the one word that defines them, you know, atheists not believing in God, not believing in the supernatural, like near-death experiences. They may even be part of groups or interact with, with other atheists. So that's really a part of who they are. So obviously when they hear the evidence for the reality of near-death experiences or other people talking that, they're not surprisingly going to reject that initially. It's only going to take, you know, a lot of evidence or goodness sakes a personal experience that with a near-death experience to change some of these people's embedded attitudes. And by the way, I made a little bit of a study of people that had near-death experiences that were atheists at the time of their experience that encountered God. So you know where this is headed. <laughs> Obviously, uh, virtually all of them, with one notable exception, came back no longer an atheist. And I think the eighth other one just was atheist in the sense of not believing in religion. But as best I could tell, every atheist that encountered God in their near-death experience embraced the reality that that was God that was real. And that was shattering to their pre-existing beliefs and even to some extent identity. Interesting. So the last question that I want to leave you with is really, what do you think the future of uh, research is on near-death experiences? And if you could talk a little bit more about your next book and, you know, just where you want to go with the future of this. That, that is such a good question. I virtually no near-death experience research is funded. And that's a tragedy because let's not forget we're over 40 years out from Raymond Moody writing the book Life After Life that first introduced people to the term near-death experience. So you'll hear a lot of optimism and wow, the world's changing, but I, I tend to be a realist first. If you're out over 40 years and there's essentially no funded research, which you really need to, to do big studies and to really get it published in the major medical journals, if you're out 40 year, over 40 years and you still don't have enough people able to go out and make a vocation studying near-death experiences, I'm not sure how much things are going to change in the next 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years. It's probably going to take like some type of, a, of an angel who has the ability to fund these that, that funnels the money toward research. And I, again, that hasn't happened in over 40 years. But I'll tell you what I think will happen as the time goes forward. The issue of near-death experiences, the evidence for its reality, the vast number, literally millions of people around the world that have had it, We'll continue to share. There's going to be continued curiosity, continued media interest, continued buzz getting around the world, considering continued very important talks like what we're having here to get the word out. And I think in the time, I, you know, short or long run, I don't know, but I think eventually the with near-death experiences not going away, not being able to be explained by skeptics, there's going to come a time in humankind's curiosity, and it might not even be in America, where they sit down and do some serious investigation on that with the intent of finding the truth about near-death experience. That will be a paradigm shift. If they search with sincerity, publish that, get the word out, then um, I think more and more people will realize, I I would let the truth be known for whatever the research is, but I'm pretty sure where we're at. And I think that would be one thing to, it's a way of speaking to people of the earth in a language they respect and understand. Funded research, major medical journals, lots of them replicated. That's the scientific language that people know and respect. And I think once you get a lot of that going, um, you know, especially some verified out-of-body observations in a scientific setting, once you start getting that ball rolling, there's going to be a paradigm shift. When more and more people embrace the reality of near-death experiences, more and more people are going to look at their deeper messages and uh, I think the world will eventually change as a result of better knowing near-death experience. Isn't that interesting? You and I, we're technically pioneers. I mean, <laughs> you look back and say, geez, not, you know, not many people were talking about it back in this uh, era in human history. I hope a lot more do, and I expect they will. Because, again, I think having a positive uh, hope for humanity, I think ultimately, collectively in humanity, what's true will ultimately be known. And I believe that's near-death experiences. Thank you for that. That was a beautiful answer. And you, you succinctly covered that topic. And I think, too, that people from all walks of life have to come out and talk and do what they can to bring this message forward. Like, I would love it if a movie was made about my life based on my book, just because I think there are certain key elements of my life as a young person, you know, lost in kind of a party culture in college, 
and then being agnostic and having this near-death experience that would resonate with a lot of the youth and with a lot of people who are lost and suicidal and you know going through depression and you know various various things that are very important in society right now that you know they're key issues so i think near-death experiencers lives before and after the near-death experience can offer up healing for this world and you know i would love to see more major movies more major books you know more major talks uh just more information out there it surprises me when people attack me or others for wanting to put this message out there like you know for making money off of a spiritual uh, experience and my point is like hmm, no i think it's it's more like raising the consciousness of humanity in a sense not it's not about uh you know the yeah that part of the journey yeah and you and i are on totally on the same page you know we may publish a book but what are we really doing it's an act of love that's mm -hmm. what you're doing that's your outreach to I mean, it's nice to get make some money for it. Goodness knows we've put a huge amount of effort into it, so that's reasonable. But ultimately, if you want to say why are we really doing what's most important, it's really an act of love and sharing that love with all of humanity. That's by far the most important. Yes, yes. Like as a teacher in a classroom, I think, well, what if my words help this one student? Well, what if a movie helped thousands of people who were considering suicide or we're in this place of deep darkness and then they picked up you know something on healing and began this journey and let's face it you know there are more people who watch movies than read so you yeah. know like there's there's that element too you know that you know reaching people through music through movies through books in any way possible i think is the beauty of this era because too there's netflix there's amazon there's all these different you know there's youtube you know what we're doing yeah, but really are yeah uh, no i couldn't agree more yeah thanks for sharing that it's, yes uh it's not it's you know huge amount of thanks to you and the others that that carry the torch of near-death experiences and the light forward in humanity uh i you know i think there's going to come a time where near-death experiences are increasingly recognized as the extremely valuable portal to what lies beyond uh, and how unifying that will be for all of humanity because it's a message that literally uh, it's a shared experience that you can have no matter where you live on the planet. Uh, and it could be a very powerful force for peace in this world, too. So, yes. so much is so important to get the word out about near-death experiences. So glad and you're doing it. Yeah. And life yeah. is short, too. That's the way I look at it. We have this journey, and we're trying to do as much as we can in a short amount of time to raise consciousness, spread love, and that's just the journey is it's over like that. So you might as well yeah. put it all out there. <laughs> yeah, I'm reminded year after year when I had my birthday, up we're only dancing on the earth a little while. So you really have to make the best use of our time. And certainly for both of us, obviously, that's an extremely important part of what we do. And uh, in fact, I'm really thrilled to have the opportunity to share that. I mean, I, in medicine, as with my near-death experience research, it's ultimately an act of service it's ultimately a loving outreach and uh, i've never lost sight of that over the years don't think i ever will wonderful well it's been such a pleasure talking with you thank you so much for well, coming on my channel this has been a delight spectacular interview thank you so much thank you and for those of you watching please check out the links below so you can get Jeffrey Long's book and keep up with him. And also please check out the courses that I'm offering on my website because I do want to support near-death experiencers and connect them with groups of people that they can help. And that's part of my mission, but thank you and may you be